The scripture reading from today, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you have one. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might be reconciled as, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. You can be seated. In, uh, in the year 1982, a group of uh, black reformed Christians in South Africa began meeting in a small town called Belhar. They were representatives of the Black Reformed Church of South Africa. In 1982, this was in the middle of the reign of apartheid, uh, where legalized segregation uh, was the rule in South Africa. And they met together uh, to deal with this problem among themselves. You see, the, the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, uh, under apartheid, it actually fractured into four separate churches. There was a white Reformed Church, there was a black reformed church, there was a colored reformed church, which was their word for people of mixed ethnicity, and then there was an Indian reformed church because under British rule, uh, a large number of Indian uh, people had been brought to South Africa. And so here they were in four separate churches, all with the same creeds, all with the same foundational beliefs, but separated by race and by culture. These men gathered together with one simple goal, to lay a theological groundwork for unity, a theological groundwork for diversity uh, within the body of Christ. They knew that it was not going to be enough just to push uh, for reconciliation on sociological grounds or because it felt like the thing to do. No, if they were just looking to go with the, the winds of their culture, they would have stayed isolated. 
But it was their belief that disunity among the body of Christ, along racial lines, was not a, an incidental issue, that it actually struck at the very core of the gospel. That it made the Christian testimony of God reconciling the world to himself into a mockery for the church to be divided from one another. And so they came together with no reasonable uh, expectation of success culturally. I mean, when they were meeting, apartheid still ruled the day. Nelson Mandela was still in a prison on Robben Island. This was before the changes swept that nation. And when they got together to lay this theological groundwork for unity and for justice, the scripture passage that they went to first and most often is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, the passage that we just read. I'll read you the beginning of what became known as the Belhar Confession. We believe that Christ's work of reconciliation is made manifest in the church as the community of believers who have been reconciled with God and with one another. That unity is therefore both a gift and an obligation for the church of Jesus Christ. That through the working of God's spirit, it is a binding force. And yet simultaneously a reality which must be earnestly pursued and sought one which the people of God must continually be built up to attain, that this unity must become visible so that the world may believe that separation, enmity, and hatred between people and groups is a sin which Christ has already conquered. And accordingly, anything which threatens this unity may have no place in the church and must be resisted. Imagine the courage that it took as a group of young black pastors under the reign of apartheid, to pin those words and to release them, to make them public with the hope that they would become a foundation for unifying those four branches of the church. Imagine the courage that it took to essentially say what they said, which is we don't care what our government says. We don't care what our, what our society says. In the church, unity in diversity is not optional. It's not up for negotiation. We're going to pursue it. And in God's mercy, uh, they did. They pursued it. And these documents did serve as a foundation for one Reformed church in South Africa. It has become a, uh, a confession that other churches around the, uh, around the globe have used and leaned on. Well, they were right. Their instincts were right to go to Ephesians chapter 2 to lay a groundwork for this. Because the problem they saw in the South African church the problem that many of us would see if we look around the church around us is exactly the same problem that Paul has in his targets in Ephesians chapter 2. What's meant to be one church, unified by the blood of Jesus, unified by a common faith and a common baptism, he sees it fractured. There in, in Ephesus, not along the lines of white and black, but along the lines of Jew and Gentile. And what he sees and what he says is that division, tribalism, taking more pride in your subgroup than you do in the unity of the church is a sin that needs to be opposed because it is against, it's contrary to what God is doing for the world in Jesus. We've seen earlier that he summed that up, joining all things together in himself, being victorious over the powers, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, conquering the supernatural forces of evil, but then binding up things on earth, the diversity of humanity brought together into one family. So how does Jesus 
fight uh, division? How does he end uh, tribalism? We're going to see it in this passage that he does three things. He opposes our pride, he becomes our peace, and then he builds a house. He builds a house. First, he opposes our pride. Look, there's some serious deconstruction going on in these first couple of verses. Look at the way that he addresses the Gentiles. Remember, in the, in the, uh, the cultural setting of these letters, these would have come to a church, this letter to Ephesians, we think would have come to several churches in the region around Ephesus. And they would have been read out loud. It wouldn't have come where everybody had an individual copy that they took home and read and studied on their own. Somebody, probably a messenger from Paul, would have stood up in front of a group of people of mixed lineage, some Jew and some Gentile, and then would have said those words, these words. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. We'll go on to say that these Gentiles were without hope in the world, cut off from God's people. If you're a Gentile, uh, these are the, the Greek and Roman citizens who'd come to Israel's faith, who'd come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and are now in fellowship with them. To hear yourself first referred to primarily as in the negative, right? That's, that's naturally something that's kind of offensive. To refer to people as, all right, now I'm going to talk to all of you, all you people who aren't English speakers, all of you people who aren't white, all of you people who aren't black, whatever. He's defining them by what they aren't. And he puts it in quotation marks. This is the way that they're referred to, the way they're referred to almost as a slur. So that just as the Jewish people boasted in their circumcision, the, the mark of the covenant, the mark that they were in fellowship with God, so they looked down on some of their Gentile neighbors, some of their Greek and Roman neighbors, calling them the uncircumcision. You don't belong to that group. You don't belong to our family. You don't belong to our history. You're strangers to us. And so Paul initially adopts that language, and he says to the Gentiles, remember that before Christ, you really were on the outside. You might have taken pride. There were all kinds of reasons why Greeks and Romans took pride in themselves. They were more sophisticated. They were more cosmopolitan. They were more powerful. They were more wealthy. So they might have had reason for boasting, reason for feeling proud. And Paul's saying, listen, you have to remember that you were cut off from God. You were still worshiping uh, thousands of gods, representing all the forces of nature. You were, you were strange to us. You were on the outside looking in. So don't think that you're too good for us. Don't think that you're too good to, to enter into Israel's faith and Israel's Messiah. So he knocks them down a peg. But then he turns to the Jews in the audience, those who look down on the Gentiles and believe themselves to be the circumcision, the ones who bore the marks of being God's special people. You know, it's one of the strange things about reading uh, the Old Testament in light of what we know that God was doing in the New Testament. But it does seem for a stretch of the Old Testament like God is endorsing a type of tribalism, right? God picks one nation, one race, one family, right? The, the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel, and blesses them. He gave them certain things that were distinct just about them, certain laws, certain ways of life, a temple where he would live with them and them with him. He gave them certain, certain markers of their tribe. But his plan was always that they would be a tribe within the family of human tribes and that through them, they would welcome in all the other families of the earth. Right? The Old Testament is full of images 
of peoples and nations and different languages coming in to worship Israel's God and Israel's temple. But what happened over time was that Israel started to take pride, to be self-righteous and arrogant about those things that set them apart. That's what's going on. When Paul talks about circumcision, he's using it as a shorthand for all of those boundary markers that Israel looked at to tell themselves that they were better than the, the Gentile nations. All those things that had become for them self-righteous markers. What Paul's going to call later in the passage uh, the wall of hostility that they had built up between themselves and Gentiles. And he does a, a wonderful little critique that's, uh, that's somewhat subtle. In verse 11, he refers to them as by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. If you read the Old Testament... Uh, anytime something is said to have been made by hands, it's a sign of idolatry. It's a way that the, the Old Testament prophets contrasted the, the, work, the worship of Israel's God, the true God, who was not something made by hands, right? He's a spirit, he's, he's transcendent, he's wholly other, versus the gods of the pagans who were statues and totem poles and idols and things made by hands. And so when Paul says that you are the circumcision, but the one that was made by hands, he's saying that even those markers, even that circumcision, had become for you a type of idolatry. It had become not a marker that you belong to the true God, but a sign that you're worshiping false gods, a sign that you're actually worshiping your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own strength. And so Paul goes right at both the pride of the Gentiles and the pride of the Jews in this letter. Because what he's saying is this, is that it's your pride that divides you. It's your pride that divides you. It's your pride that divides you from God, right? It's Adam and Eve, our first parents. It's their pride that led to sin, the aspiration to be like God in their own eyes. And it's our pride that makes us, that divides us from each other. It's our pride that makes us feel like we're better than, than one another. It's our pride that helps us take so much pride in our own nationality or ethnicity or culture and that defines that by putting down others who does your pride divide you from who does your pride make you feel like you're better than it might be obvious looking at your life or it might be subtle but Paul's telling us and I think he's, he's got his finger on the truth that, it, that it's human nature to have a pride that inherently builds ourselves up at the expense of others so who does your pride divide you from? So first, he exposes our pride, and then he becomes for us our peace. Paul says here of Jesus that he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Not just that he brings peace, or that he shows us the way to peace, or that he teaches us about peace so that we can go out and be peaceful people, but that Jesus Christ is himself our peace. This is him looking at what Isaiah prophesied, that Jesus, the, the Messiah, would be the Prince of Peace. What Malachi said when he said that God himself would become their peace. That to be in Jesus by faith is to be at peace. Is to be at peace with God, restored to him. It's to become at peace with others. Paul characterizes Jesus' message here is that he pronounced peace to those who are far off, and peace to those who are near. Later in Ephesians, he's going to call the gospel the shorthand for Jesus' message as the gospel, the good news of peace. 
that in Christ, God has reached out to humanity and offered us, who were his enemies, who were at war with him, peace and unity and reconciliation with him. And here's the truth that Paul's after. You will never, ever live at peace with your neighbors, with those who are different than you by culture, by skin color. You will never live at peace until you know peace with God, until you are united to the one who is peace. You will continue to be a participant in the world's prejudice, its hatred, its violence. Only in Christ can you know peace. Only in Christ. You know, most of our prejudice, uh, most of our hatred comes out of fear, comes out of vulnerability, comes out of insecurity. I don't know when you first realized just how terrifying the vulnerability of being human really is. Where you realize that this world uh, brings to yourself innumerable threats. Threats to your body, threats to your soul, threats to your identity. I don't know where you were. I do remember where I was. I could, I could, I could help you imagine it. And I think for some of you, you might have had a similar experience. The first moment that I realized the terrifying vulnerability of human nature was in the first week of middle school. Thrust out of the relative safety of the home, the relative uh, innocence of elementary school, you walk onto a middle school campus. And if you don't realize in the first week that this is a terrifying place, that the more the world gets to know you, it will not necessarily be universally accepting, that your peers will not necessarily delight in you, but that every bit of yourself that you reveal is actually an exposure. It's actually an exposure to harm. It's an exposure to ridicule. That middle school is terrifying. So here's what psychologists and sociologists tells us happens universally during this time of life, during the time of life of middle school, is that realizing how insecure our identities are, realizing how threatened we feel, we cling to one another to build an identity for ourselves. Right? Sociologists and psychologists tell us this is really healthy, that what you're going through in middle school, when you, when you team up and you join and become a herd, become a tribe with other like-minded kids, is you have an awareness that I'm just not strong enough to stand up against this flood on my own. But if I can find other kids who are like me, right, if I can join with the jocks and be a jock, or if I can, be, if I can find other kids who are musical and I can be in with the band kids, or if there's other, you know, maybe I'll join a counterculture and become one of the punk kids or one of the goth kids, right, or maybe I'll, I'm gifted and I'll become a, a theater kid. And when other kids make fun of us, we can cling to each other. Right, and so we, 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 we form cliques, we form tribes. Not necessarily because we want to, but because we know we need each other to survive. I remember my story coming into, into middle school. I was both an athlete, or wanted to be an athlete. Right, I was going to play football, that was going to be me. But I also loved the arts. I loved theater. I was, I, I was in our fifth and sixth grade theater productions. I was thinking maybe I could be in plays and stuff like that. And immediately, nope, you got to pick one, son, <laughs> right? Either whether it's from your football coach getting at you for being, you know, a theater kid, whether it was from the peers. I felt, 
I felt then, and I wish I had the maturity to, to resist that choice, but I chose. I chose a click. I chose a way of going about it. And we all do this as a survival, uh, as a means of survival. Now, God, being rich in mercy, allows us to go through middle school and grow out of it. Um, we are not doomed to repeat that circle uh, over and over again. But sadly, we do not necessarily outgrow tribalism. We may grow up in it. We may come to identify different markers, different ways of, of banding together in a tribe. Maybe it's by culture. Maybe it's by race. Maybe it's by political affiliation. Maybe it's by socioeconomic class. But we still, left to our own fear and vulnerability, choose to cluster ourselves together with people who are like us, choose to make ourselves feel more justified in that by putting down others, by looking at others as less than. Tribalism continues, whether it's a middle school cafeteria, which is just a microcosm for the world. It's a microcosm for your, your, your place of work, for your neighborhood, for the United Nations. Right? We, we still stay in tribal, uh, tribal divisions. And that's what Paul uh, is getting after here. That until that, that innate fear and vulnerability that's at the root of it all, you, people aren't racist because they feel so good and positive about themselves. Right? They're, people don't choose racism because, well, I just got such good self-esteem. I just feel like I'm that great. Life's going well for me. I'm going to put others down. No, they, they, they go to it. We go to it out of fear, out of vulnerability, out of fear of others, fear that our own, our own situation is so precarious that we need it. And Paul says you will never get beyond it until you know the peace of Christ, until you know a peace that's deeper than your fears and vulnerabilities, until you can face the world knowing that there's nothing that can be taken from you that you ultimately need, because in Christ you have everything, that you can't be put down in a way that ultimately devastates you, because your identity isn't in the opinion of others, your identity is hid with God in Christ, that you ultimately don't have to prove yourself to the world through socioeconomic attainment and through climbing a ladder, because in Christ uh, you are already accepted and approved of, you already have a secure identity. And so what Paul is saying to the Jews and to the Gentiles in his congregation, what we need to hear, whether we're white or black or Hispanic or Asian, whatever we are, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're upwardly mobile or not, what we need to hear is that Christ is our peace. Christ is your peace. And until he's your peace, there is no peace. You'll never attain it. You need to ground it in him. And Paul says that's the foundation for one new people, one new family, no longer divided by race or by culture, by class, no longer divided, but one humanity joined together in Christ who is our peace. And so uh, he destroys our pride, he becomes our peace, and then he builds a house. He builds a house. Uh, Paul says here, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
This follows a, a, a pattern that we see uh, often in ancient religion. It's fascinating, really. Uh, and, and, uh, and also, we see it a lot in the Old Testament. That a pattern, whether it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, or, or Baal, the God of the, uh, the Canaanites, the one of the patterns that, that seems repeated is this idea of cosmic warfare. The gods do battle with each other, and then the victorious God builds himself a temple, builds himself a house to commemorate his victory. We see it over and over in the, uh, in, in the, in the Old Testament especially. Yahweh himself even follows this pattern. He's victorious over the gods around him. He's victorious in setting up his people. And so they build a temple, a place where he'll dwell with them, safe and secure, no longer at threat. And that's what Paul's doing here, that Jesus on the cross has done battle with his spiritual enemies. A couple weeks ago, we talked about him defeating the powers, defeating the the supernatural forces of evil. He's united for himself a family, and so he goes to build himself a house. He goes to build himself a temple. But this temple, the temple that Jesus builds, isn't a temple built by hands. It's not one that you can go and visit. It's a living temple made up of people of every language, every color, every socioeconomic stratus, every kind of person there is, knit together into this new household built on Christ Jesus. We're no longer strangers and aliens to it, but we belong within it. We're no longer on the outside looking in to real community and real life and a real uh, uh, a warm and living household. But we're brought into it, invited into it by God's mercy. Fellow citizens, members of God's household. This is one of the richest passages in all of scripture about the church, about ecclesiology is the big theological word for it, about what it means to be the church, about what it means to be in the household of God. And so as we, as we conclude, we're just going to look kind of in rapid fire. It's some of the things it means for us to be in the household of God. It's some of the ways that Paul characterizes this household and what it might mean for us as a church and as individuals to live in the household of God as Paul describes it. The first thing we see is that the household of God is a temple. It's a temple. Even though it looks to us like the chapel of a city rescue mission, even though there's stains on the carpet and the, the carpet peels up, even though we're, we're, you know, it's just, we, we know it's just a, a normal building, but what Paul's saying is that the household of God is a temple. It's a place where we experience communion with the Trinity. Paul says here in verse 18 that through him, that's through Christ, We both have access in one spirit to the Father. What happens in the church, whether we're scattered, but especially when we're gathered in worship, is that we experience communion with the Trinity. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we approach the Father. We can pray to him, we experience him, we praise him. That that's what's going on here when we meet. That's what's happening, is supernatural communion with the Trinity, with the the one who created and redeemed the entire earth, that we, Jew and Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, brought together with the Trinity, here and available to you, that's what happens. The household of God is a temple. The household of God is a political reality. The household of God is a political reality. Look at the word Paul uses. He doesn't just say you're church members. He says you're citizens. You are citizens of the household of God just as really and as truly and actually even more deeply than you are a citizen of the United States of America, 
You are a citizen of the household of God. And that citizenship is more real and more lasting, should shape your identity more profoundly than your citizenship as an American ever should. Right? It is more real and more lasting than, than, than what it means to be an American. When your American citizenship feels fraught with anxiety, when you look at our political landscape and pl- plot a move to Canada, right? When you, when, you, when you look and have reason to despair at your options, there is great hope in knowing that your citizenship, your primary marker, is as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The church that God's building, this, this household of God, is a transnational political reality. That's the reason that we don't keep an American flag in the church. We love being Americans. We think that your, your citizenship as an American has real uh, responsibilities and real privileges, and we should celebrate that. That's wonderful. But we can't fit the flag of every nation in the world in this building. We can't afford to buy one of everything. Uh, we, can't, we don't have room on the walls for one flag of every nation on the earth. And that is the reality of the church. It's a transnational, global body knit together in Christ. Do you worry as much about the fate of the church around the world as you worry about life in America? Do you worry about the outcomes of political decisions and military actions and sociological movements as much about the Christian who worships in fear in a house church in Beijing or a cave of Afghanistan as you do about what it might mean for your neighbors? Your political reality is that you're a citizen of the household of God. The household of God is not divided. It's one household. It is not divided. This is what we saw, the, what the, the people who wrote the Belhar Confession were getting at. That it's not, it's not a divided house by color, by race, by culture. It's one house. It's one house brought together of all kinds of people. And we need what they need, what they needed which is a theological grounding for unity and acceptance of one another. Listen, right now, diversity is kind of in culturally, right? It is, it is, it is good in our culture. The church gets pats on the back for being for tolerance, for being for diversity. It is, to go, it, it is somewhat in. 70 years ago, it was terribly out, right? 70 years ago, the church was patted on the back for endorsing a system of segregation and division. We have to have something deeper than going with what happens to be in in the moment. We have to have a conviction more gripping than just going with the flow of our cultural current. Diversity might be in today, it might be out again tomorrow. That does not matter to us. What matters to us is that Jesus has bought for himself a church that's made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's why we pursue diversity. That's why we pursue unity. We should seek unity within individual churches, right? This church, Christ Church in town, should seek to be as diverse as we can be, as loving and as open and as accepting of all sorts of people as we possibly can be. We should also seek unity uh, with churches, majority white churches and majority black churches should come together to seek the welfare of our city to seek the reconciliation of our lives. We should be about pursuing that together. Churches on the north side and churches on the south side should seek meaningful ways to partner, 
to witness to the truth and goodness and beauty of the gospel in our city. Because the church is not to be divided. The household of God is not to be divided by race. It's not to be divided by faction. Right? It's not to be divided by the little ghettos of the church that we cling to. Right? We should be more proud of being a Christian than you are of being a Presbyterian. Right? I have a friend that likes to say, we hope that there are Presbyterians in heaven, but we know that no one will be a Presbyterian in heaven. Right? The words Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist and Episcopalian and Catholic, those words will be resigned to the dustbin of history when one day their sad reality, the sad reality of our division is done away with and we're joined together in Christ, one family of God. Why would you fall, why would you fall in love with a name you know you don't get to keep? Why would you take pride in something that you know is eventually to be done away with? We need to focus on our union in Christ with one another, with all sorts of churches. What does that mean for us in this church? Well, it means that we seek to be connected to other churches. We're a part of a denomination. We are a part of the Presbyterian Church, so we're unified in a, in a very real way with other churches around our area, around North Florida and around the nation. We should seek to be unified with our neighbor churches across the street and down the road and seeking ways to serve the city. Just earlier this week, I was talking with the pastor of uh, One Love Christian, uh, Christian Church across the street about ways that we can uh, do a backpack giveaway for kids as they go back to school in the surrounding neighborhoods. We need to find more ways to partner with other churches of other stripes in our neighborhood to seek the well-being of the neighborhood. It means we have to come to view the blessings and failures of other churches as though they're our own. Uh, this week, I watched the movie Spotlight, which won, uh, won Best Picture this past year. It's the story of a group of journalists for the Boston Globe that exposed the, uh, the terrible, terrible tragedy of the child sexual abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. To be one church means that I avoid what felt natural in the moment, which is, oh, thank goodness we're not Catholic. Thank goodness that's their problem and not my problem. And it means moving beyond that and going, Oh, God, this is our problem. The, pro the problems of the church are the problems of the church. Our hearts need to break with our brothers and sisters. Our hearts need to break over error, over pain, over all that goes on in those situations. We need to view them as family and not as some third cousin twice removed that we never talk to, but as family. And we celebrate their victories and we mourn their hurts. We view it as, uh, as one, one family. It means that when we plant the church and we're building up a church, we don't do it by putting down other churches. Right? It means that we don't justify our own existence by bad-mouthing other churches. Well, you know why we started this one? Well, it's because those Methodists down the street, they're, they're doing it wrong. Or the Baptists up the road. Or the Episcopalians over there. And it's so easy to prop ourselves up, to justify our own existence by putting others down and to be a part of one family means that we don't do that. It means we're honest about what we see as the, the blessings and shortcomings of different branches of God's family, but be willing to be honest about our own glaring shortcomings and that we enter in together as one family, as one family. So the household of God won't be divided. And then finally, the household of God is not yet what it will be. It's not yet what it will be. Look at what he says here. 
he mixes metaphors. So on the one hand, it's a, it's a building, it's a household. But on the other, it's like this plant that's, that's currently still growing. So we're brought into, uh, ah, my page accidentally turned, okay. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's living. It's, it's growing. It's being built. So it's like a temple, but it's also like a plant. It's like this organic, living, growing temple that's still being built up. This means that the, the church's golden era, the church's brightest day, is ahead of us, not behind us. Right? It's easy as the church to fall in love with certain eras of the church's life. Right, this, this denomination, we're a, a theologically conservative Presbyterian denomination. That means we can sometimes look at the 1500s as though creation reached its apex and the church its highest flourishing in the Protestant Reformation. Right, oh, if only we had Luther and Calvin as our pastors. Right, if only we, we sung all those hymns. If only we could just live in the 1500s. Or the sixth, now for medical reasons and all kind of others, you don't want to do that. But, uh, but we, look, we can look at an era in church history as being our golden era. Or maybe you look back to the early, early 20th century in America when it seemed like the church was more influential and pervasive in the culture. Where it seemed like we were in a place of power instead of being in a place of weakness. And you go, oh, that's the golden era. If we could only somehow get back there to like the 1950s, that was our golden era. But no, Paul's saying God is not done with his church. He's not done building it. He's not done growing it. That the church today, if you can view it from a global perspective, is bigger and more diverse and more thriving than it's ever been before. There's Christians gathering today on every continent, speaking every language, and that God will be building that church in numbers and in unity, in vitality, and openness, and knowledge of who he is, and, and what it means to follow him. So I love what Paul does here. Christ is our cornerstone. That's not up for debate, right? He sets the shape. He sets the foundation of the church. The apostles and the prophets, that's the teachings of the scriptures. That's part of our foundation and our base. That's why we take the word of God very, very seriously here. Why it's preaching and it's reading takes centerpiece in our life. So we're looking back at our heritage and our foundation. But we're looking forward with hope and imagination and creativity, imagining and praying for God to build his church, to help it to grow, to help it to reach new sorts of people, to help it to reach into a better and more visible unity and vibrancy than it ever has before. So we look back at a legacy and we look forward in hope, knowing that God will build this house. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have gathered us to be members of your household, that no longer are we strangers and aliens, no longer are we cut off from life with you in your home, but we have been brought near and joined to you in Jesus. Help us, knowing the peace that we have in Christ, help us to be agents of peace in our world. Help us to know and to love one another within the body of Christ. Help us to serve our community. Uh, to serve all sorts of people, whether we view them as like us or unlike us. Lord Jesus, help your church to attain the unity that you designed it for, that you redeemed us for, 
that you, Lord Jesus, prayed that we would have. Lord Jesus, help us to labor uh, towards that peace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.